Coders, good afternoon or good evening. It's uh, 21.05 here in uh, the UK and uh, it's another live stream. It is another live show. It is episode 81, I believe, of the How to Cope Well podcast. And yes, we are doing it live once more. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Hacktober. I have um, some views, some opinions, some things that I want to discuss regarding Hacktober. And also, we're doing a live QA at the end of the show as well. Uh, I have six questions that uh, I'm going to be answering. Answering? Is that a word? Answering from the community. Uh, the questions came from YouTube, Discord, um, and uh, and Twitter. If you've got any questions that you would like to ask during the show, then please do let me know. Put them down in the uh, in the comments here, and I will get to them at the end of the show. So, first of all, Hacktober. Um, if anybody has seen my newsletter uh, that I put out every every week, you'll you'll know that the last one was about Hacktober, and there was a bit of discussion there about my views on Hacktober, and I just kind of wanted to round out some of the edges today um, and talk about what I think um, is happening to Hacktober and how it could become better. Because at the end of the day, um, Hacktober, unfortunately... um, it came, it, it caused a bit of a stink this year round, um, more than normal. And, uh, we'll talk, talk about that too. But, uh, I also want to just put a spin on it as to how we can make it, how we can improve it, uh, in the future. So if you don't know, Hacktober is, uh, the month of October where, uh, Digital, o- Digital Ocean, um, it promotes hacking or promotes, not hacking, promotes, um, uh, uh, contributing to the community to open source, uh, in Hacktober. So, uh, they, they have got together with a bunch of, um, I, I don't want to use the word influencers to advertise, um, Hacktober and you put in, you, you contribute to a project on GitHub and you, um, you put in like hashtag Hacktober. And then the idea is that you get a t-shirt. Um, you basically win a t-shirt for the amount of times you submit, um, pull requests and so on and so forth. The trouble though, and it's the same trouble that we've had for many years. It's just this year has kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, there's more of it, I guess. Um, is that people have been using Hacktober as a means of just quickly getting a t-shirt um, and not caring about the code that they submit. So it's kind of a, a, a kind of a, a cheap and easy way for someone to uh, contribute in a very low quality kind of way. <laughs> um, and of course, this has caused a big stink with the maintainers of, um, of these projects because the thing is, in my opinion, the problem is that it's been promoted really, really well. However, it hasn't been explained well enough. Um, the whole act of, of creating a pull request, uh, hasn't really been, um, explained, uh, in detail because there is so much involved with a pull request. Um, it's not just submitting code. It's not this thing where you just set and forget it. Um, you know, let's just create a, a commit to a piece of co- to some code, and then there you go. I've now contributed to to this big open source project, and I'll have a T-shirt. Yes, thank you, please. It's not like that at all. There is a lot of um, things that happen, a lot of stuff that happens in the background that that uh, people aren't aware of. Um, in terms of triaging issues, uh, communicating the, the, uh, pull request back to the various maintainers and, um, having that sort of discussion, that open discussion. And this is all done in an open space, right? Um, and you may think that you can submit some code and that goes off to one person, but in actual fact, it probably goes off to many people. And so what we've effectively done is, allowed we've promoted the ability of um spamming a lot of maintainers <laughs> with really poor quality code commits just to get t-shirts and um yeah it's it's not great nobody really talks about the etiquette of writing a pull request um explaining why the pull request is needed 
explaining what is the what the issue uh, is being solved and how it's being solved, and also the etiquette of having that discussion with the maintainer. It's not the maintainer's job to just accept every single pull request <laughs> and the the duration of a pull request to actually being put into production can be quite long. I did a pull request not so long ago to um, the Codeception um, project because I saw that there was an issue with some of the documentation. Now, that that typo that I fixed in the documentation didn't actually go out to Codeception in, in production for several weeks because it had to be verified and checked. And then, of course, you've got translations and all of that jazz. So it's not a case of just creating some codes and then uh, pushing that up uh, into a, into some sort of pull request and off you go. And unfortunately, we've, we've allowed, and I, this is going to sound really gatekeepy, um, which is kind of what I want to avoid, but it's, it, I'm going to do it anyway. We've, we're the barrier of entry is so low because it's being promoted so much that you can get a t-shirt because you can do all of these pull requests. Um, and people were just submitting pull requests left, right and center without actually thinking about the code, the quality of the code. Um, and it's, it's getting the causing a stink. It's getting the backs up of, of these maintainers and quite rightly rightfully so, uh, to the point where this, um, digital ocean had to do an opt-in. Um, so, and in my opinion, this didn't happen soon enough. So now there's an opt-in where projects have to opt-in to become part of this Hacktober, um, event. But this, I feel has come too, too little, too, um, uh, not, not soon enough, unfortunately. And I fear that next year, there's going to be a lot of projects that just don't bother with uh, with Hacktober, um, which is a shame because on the one hand you've got all of these maintainers who are who are saying that that um, Hacktober has just been nothing but um, painful for them, um, and then you've got an, you know the other group of of maintainers who quite rightfully are trying to find ways to bring people into open source. Um, in a in a better way, you know, they're all constantly asking how many, you know, how how can we get more people working on our projects? Um, but there needs to be a level of education. You know, it's not a case of just submitting code and off you go. It's there's a whole process, and it's there's something I've been thinking about it a lot. Perhaps there needs to be a series of videos that I do. Uh, and other people in this space do where they demonstrate a pull request in a real world project um, to go through the timeline and actually discuss and demonstrate that from from creating a pull request to actually putting it onto putting it into code and whether that can be just through documentation or whether it's actually you know a, a feature that kind of thing. I know that we do a lot of stuff on on Twitch. Um, but it's, it's kind of all the stuff we do on Twitch, unfortunately is closed source. Um, but it, I'm thinking maybe if there is something that I do that is open source, then I could use that as an opportunity to highlight the actual process of a pull request. Um, but the thing is, I then started thinking, would I want to be part of this Hacktober fest? You know, if some, if I'm having to deal with people just putting in some really shoddy lines of code or just some commits to a rate readme file simply for the fact that they don't care about the project, they just want a t-shirt at the end of the day, that's not actually helping, um, the, the open source community at large. So I don't think I want to be involved with it. And unfortunately, I think that's the same view that a lot of people are going to have. <laughs> um, and, you know, DigitalOcean did this really big push with, you know, getting people who have Twitch streams and YouTube channels and all of that saying, you know, demonstrating how they can do pull requests and how simple and easy it is to get this t-shirt. But uh, not a lot of them, unfortunately, discussed the actual ins and outs of what a pull request does. You know, what happens to your pull request once you've submitted it? You, you know, what are the decisions that the maintainers have to make? What is the etiquette that you have to adhere to when you're 
discussing your code and the changes. Uh, you know, I, there, there, there was... There was some stories that I heard, unfortunately, where people were putting in like huge amounts of change in a pull request. And it was like the maintainer was like, I'm not even going to read this because this is ridiculous. You've now just changed all of the stuff. I mean, there was one I read that they changed the, <laughs> they changed it from tabs to spaces or with it spaces to tabs, something, some code formatting just because the person didn't like it, but you know, the person who was submitting the code didn't like it and they just wanted that as a, as another n number that they could tick off to, to get their t-shirt. And, um, yeah. It, and the, and so the maintainers have to deal with all of this craziness for, uh, one month of the year. <laughs> and as, um, uh, Nabal has said, uh, testing is mostly overlooked, uh, along with the practices that, uh, the maintainer maintainer has defined. Sure. So things like, um, uh, code styles have, if you've got, a, um, a style guide, right. Um, that's, that your open source project adheres to, then there's a lot of times where that doesn't, you know, people who submit code don't, don't bother following that. Um, and then, you know, you would hope to think that there was some, some process involved that, um, that, uh, uh, prevents poorly formatted code coming in. But as you mentioned, quite rightly so, testing, you know, um, submitting loads of uh, pieces of code without testing it, you know, because that's that's the boring thing, right? Nobody wants to test code, right? They just want to get this T-shirt really, really quickly. And so, unfortunately, I think DigitalOcean has made this uh, real big push on how easy it is to write code and submit code and all of this stuff. But they haven't actually talked about the fundamentals of what happens to a pull request. Um, and, and, you know, when you're writing a pull request, you need to be invested in the project. You know, you are, you are committing code and time and energy into a project. And it doesn't matter if you're doing a, you're, you're fixing a typo in a, in documentation, or you've found a bug in some code or an issue in code, but you are invested. It doesn't matter how much you're invested, you are invested in it. And so whatever you do should be, should be done to enhance the quality of that project. It shouldn't be a selfish act just to get a t-shirt. It should be to enhance and to, um, uh, you know, grow for the better that project. Um, it shouldn't be just for you, right? Um, that's the whole point of open source, right? It, it, it's not, it's not all about one person. It's about everybody, right? It's about everybody who's using that project. Um, and it, the, it, you have to do it with the project in mind. Um, and yeah, I mean, hats off to DigitalOcean. Obviously this is a marketing thing, right? So you get a t-shirt, it's got a DigitalOcean logo on it. You know, you've got to go to a DigitalOcean website to, to do all the bits and pieces. You're going to get, um, DigitalOcean marketing emails and all of this stuff. So, you know, they're not stupid. They've done it for marketing. <laughs> but I just, I think that, I think that the execution hasn't been done very well. That's, that's basically my point. And I think what I'll do is I'll leave it there because otherwise this might turn into a bit of a rant. And I've, sh I must say, I'm, I'm not sponsored by DigitalOcean at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's my take. Um, basically that rounds up the, the email that I sent out the, uh, the newsletter, um, that I sent out. If you want to join the newsletter, by the way, do check out the, uh, go to email.howtocodewell.net forward slash sign up and you can join the newsletter there. Um, ah, <laughs> I'm being told, uh, it's, it's Neb, Nebel. Nebel, is that correct? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name. Um, I may just revert back to Exabyte three because <laughs> um, I, I know you 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 um, you're uh, a, a good uh, viewer on Twitch and um, you actually have one of the questions that uh, I'm going to be answering um, uh, later today. And talking about the questions, <laughs> eel like fish. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Um, talking about the questions, we have, uh, I've got six questions that I'm going to go through. These are, um, questions, uh, that have been given to me over the, you know, the last, uh, few months. And some of which I have answered, uh, but I just thought this would be a great way of, um, talking about it more in more detail. I, sometimes I find that when I'm responding to people on uh, in the comments, whether it's on Discord, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's in Twitter, those mediums aren't really great for actually having a discussion. You know, it's like Twitter. You only have a certain amount of characters to put in. Uh, YouTube comments, in my opinion, are just, ridic- are just terrible. Um, you know, the amount of code that I get people send me over YouTube comments is ridiculous. <laughs> YouTube is not the way to uh, talk about code, uh, which is a real problematic when you've got a programming channel, right? Um, uh, Discord is really good. Discord's a good good medium to have a discussion because then you can actually have a, a, a good discussion with a group of people, which is, which is great. I just wish Discord was a little bit more like Slack and had replies. So you can actually reply in line. Otherwise you get people sort of talking over each other, which isn't, which I find can be quite confusing sometimes. Anyway, let's get into the, uh, let's get into the, into the question. So, um, Melonbra. <laughs> Melonbra says, great video, but can I ask, is it competitive to become a web developer in the UK? Over in America, the market is, is very saturated. Is it the same in the UK? So, um, basic, basically the question is, in the UK, is it a saturated web, de- um, market web development? It really depends on what you define or what you want to do in web development. Um, in my opinion, and I can only talk about the, 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 the area in which I'm in, because this is very different depending on where you are in, 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 even in the UK. Um, there's a lot of WordPress. Uh, there's a lot of WordPress. So, um, if you go to, I think any kind of web design, web, web agency, WordPress is a skill, um, that, uh, you kind of really need to have. Um, but it does mean that there's a, a, a saturation there of WordPress developers. Um, and then, I mean, with that, you've got good developers and bad developers and so forth. Um, also, I think Magento is uh, highly saturated too, but I think that's mostly to do with legacy in the sense that um, a lot of a lot of e-commerce sites um, are on Magento and have been on Magento for a long time. And a lot of the work that I've had over the years has actually been taking Magento from off of Magento or upgrading Magento from version one upwards. Or taking Magento and putting it onto um, another platform, but Magento seems to be the kind of the the thing for e-commerce. Um, but in terms of actually getting into the industry, I don't think it's saturated to the point where it's difficult to get into the industry. Um, you know, I think that I, th- I I still think that there's there's room for people to actually um, get a get a, a decent junior. Uh, job from the off. Um, it's, it's not a case of everyone's a coder. <laughs> so, I mean, I can only speak from here. I can't say what it's like. I can't even say what it's like in Birmingham, right? Which is just up the road or even in London. I don't know what it's like there. Um, I can just say what it is around sort of the Gloucester stroke Bristol area. Um, and at the moment it's would seem that WordPress um, Magento. So WordPress, if you're doing a blog site, um, or a catalog site, they, they, that's kind of like the go-to or Magento if you're using e-commerce. Um, but in terms of actually getting into the industry, it's not a problem. Um, I, I certainly didn't find it a problem back in the day when I, when I joined, but, um, I, I'm seeing because I keep, keep my ear to the ground in terms of recruitment, I keep seeing jobs coming in for juniors who, you know, thick and fast. So it's not a, it's not a case and, and well paid as well. So it's not a case that everybody's like the market's so saturated that the money's down. Um, so I don't think that's, that's too much of a problem. So I hope that answers that question. 
Um, okay, Cyprian has said, uh, do you do a lot of complex algorithms in PHP development? So this is an interesting question because it, it depends on what you define as an algor- algorithm, you know, complicated algorithms. Um, I guess like uh, going back to the e-commerce stuff, the algorithms that I've been working on recently are things like shipping, things like delivery, things like trying to work out where you are in the world, how much you've got in your cart, that kind of thing, and doing price conversions. Um, also doing a lot of stuff with search. So searching based on fuzzy matches or searching based on different sort of variables, filters coming through, um, and then sort of doing that in a very performant way. Um, uh, I guess, I mean, you've said PHP here, but I mean, with the search, I've been sort of leaning on things like Elasticsearch um, and then sort of uh, filtering that out through PHP. So I guess it really depends on what you mean by complicated algorithms. Um, there are certainly algorithms that we do in, in PHP, probably not as complicated in, say, the security sector or, say, the financial sector. But then I don't think they'll be using PHP for their backbone. I think they'll be using things like Go. I think they'll be using things, uh, even Rust or Python, for instance. And they'll be doing more complicated uh, algorithms, more complicated things, um, like that. PHP essentially is a, is a, the back end to the web, right? But, um, there'll be lots of other things that go on behind those scenes, um, such as, you know, uh, financial stuff, security stuff, and all of those kind of jazz, um, which, uh, which is tailored towards other languages other than PHP. Um, so. Uh, the third question is, uh, sorry, (laughs) just looking at my notes. I see killer YT. I see killer YT. I'm curious. Why did you choose flow over TypeScript? So this is, I did a video talking about flow, um, and using flow as a means of, um, uh, for, for JavaScript as a means for, uh, doing some type checking. And, um, I chose flow over TypeScript simply because I do not know TypeScript. <laughs> uh, I've never used TypeScript before, never used it before at all. Um, if I look at it, I don't really understand it. It's, 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 it's something that I've never really needed to learn. Um, I suppose all of my jobs have been mostly centered around the back end with some full stack sort of front endy stuff around it, but, it's never really been a full front end role. So there hasn't really been a, a, a need for that kind of, um, for, for TypeScript. I only used flow be- and I think this, if I remember rightly, this, this is from, um, that uh, API client that I created, uh, for the how to code well website, that, which is in flow. Um, I chose to do fl- use flow just out of pure curiosity, um, because I was using React or I am using React and Flow works really well, uh, with React. Uh, so, so yeah, it's just, it's a question of sort of the, t- I didn't have enough time to do both. And really, I don't think I'm going to have enough time to explore, f- uh, TypeScript and to make that decision. It, I'm probably, which is a shame, really, because I'm sure I can do a lot of better things in TypeScript, as as people have told me. It's just flow to me sounded seemed like a, a smaller barrier of entry, um, and it did what I needed at the time. So that's why I chose it um, over TypeScript. That's but that's essentially why, uh, to be to be honest. Um, and and you know, so far, flow seems like a good fit for what I need. Um, will I change it later? Yes, probably. <laughs> Um, you know, the new shiny and all of that stuff. Uh, but it's, it's really down to time, really, really down to time. So the next question is John Kim. Um, it looks like you are using Atom IDE. Uh, which packages are you using? Auto completion looks excellent. So, uh, this is a question that, uh, I was asked on one of my PHP tutorials. Um, 
And no, I do not use Atom IDE. I've never used Atom IDE. Um, I had to look up what it was <laughs> when I was asked this. Um, so I use PHP Storm and I, I have been using PHP Storm for many years. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, I think it's a great IDE and, um, it does exactly what I need it to do and a whole lot more, a whole lot more. Um, it is a paid for thing, right? So you do pay for a license. Um, but personally, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. I've seen, I, I've spoken to a lot of the, to the, to the people at, um, uh, IntelliJ, uh, when I saw them at conferences and stuff and they seem like they are on the ball and you know, that it, it's, it's nice to have that, um, commitment from, from people who are building the tools. Uh, it's nice to keep to, to know that they are continually upgrading and making the uh, experience of writing PHP code much better. Um, so in terms of the auto completion, I think you're talking here, John, about, um, the, the, uh, command line. So I use, uh, item. Is it item? Let me just double check. It is item. Yes, it's item. Uh, so I, I work on Macs, uh, primarily Macs and Linux boxes. And I, on Macs, I use item. And with item, I use Z shell. Um, so I don't use strict born again shell. I use Z shell. And with Z shell, there is, um, a load of plugins that you can get. Uh, one of which I use is, um, well, it's not a plugin. It's kind of a suite of plugins, I suppose. It's called Oh My Z Shell, uh, Z S C H. I think that's how you, how it is. Um, someone will probably, uh, tell me in the comments if not. And it's, um, yeah, it's it, that's Oh My Z Shell allows you to have other things uh, and configure the Z Shell, um, easier. Uh, and so I have an autocomplete plugin that uh, I use. And it's great because as you start typing on your command line, it, um, it kind of look, it looks into your history and then tries to predict what you're going to type next, which is so, so useful. And what it does is it populates the ter the, the command prompt with sort of a gray sort of dull sort of text as to what it thinks you're going to do. And if it comes, if it prints out the thing, the command, the full command that you want to do, you just press right and it goes right to the end of the, to the line. And then you press enter. Um, and there you go. You've, you've just auto completed your whole command. Um, and the thing is with this is that with, um, with, uh, the IDE PHP storm, um, you can then hook that into, um, your, your item or your, sorry, your terminal, which will then read your Z shell, uh, RC file, which will then have all of these plugins ready, ready to go. Uh, so yes, I use PHP storm instead of Atom. Um, there was another question here, uh, and I do apologize about mispronouncing this name. It's, uh, uh, gosh, Baranki, uh, Narang, <laughs> I'm sorry, Baranki, uh, how to configure multiple Python flasks apps, each running in separate Docker containers with Docker compose. So how would you do that? So uh, I, I'm, I, I am assuming this question is based on sort of like, uh, you have many websites that you want to sort of host, um, in Docker containers. And you want to somehow, uh, access those through your browser and, you know, you go to a web page, uh, a website and it go, it opens or loads up a Docker container. A, you go to another, um, website, it loads up Docker container B, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so how you would do this, how would you configure multiple flask apps? So apps, websites, yeah, each running in their separate Docker containers with Docker Compose. So with Docker Compose, what you would do is you would create um, services. Um, so each one of your apps would be a service. Say, for instance, it would be, um, you, I, I, you know, just out of, out of, uh, off the top of my head, you would have a service perhaps for, um, 
uh, authentication. You might have a service for, um, say, uh, I don't know, I don't know, um, a rating system. Or if we're talking about websites, it's probably easier if we do websites. You might have one which is a blog. You might have one which is a microsite, and you might have another one uh, which is, say, uh, your e-commerce site or, or something like that. But the thing is, you want to access those Docker containers individually. And the thing is that each one of those are going to be running port 80, right? So, or, or 443 or what have you. And you need to map your host entry to those containers. Now, those containers, the difficulty here is that those containers are going to have a different IP address every time you spin one up and spin one down. This means that uh, you can't just map an IP uh, into your host file. You can't just simply do that one-to-one. Uh, which is a, which is a problem. I get around this by creating a Docker machine. So a Docker machine is basically a little VPS that you create on your, on your uh, system. And that VPS, uh, has an IP address. And then all the Docker containers within that Docker machine can then be, you can then expose those, those, those ports, port 80, 443, what have you. Um, to that IP address. And then you can, in your host entry, you would then map a actual domain name to that IP address. Trouble is, I mean, that's all well and good, right? But um, what happens if you want to, to go one step further and have multiple services within that Docker machine? This is where you would have reverse proxies. So you would have Nginx or you... Apache, what have you, you would have a web server, you would have a container, which is a web server, and it would be doing, it would be listening to traffic and then doing a reverse proxy back to one of the, one of the, one of the services. So um, let's say, for instance, if you went to forward slash users, it would take you to the users um, container. If you did forward slash blog, it would take you to the blog container. Um, or if you, if you change the vhost, you can actually do it by proper domain names and you can map, map them back. The how to code well website at the moment, the new one, um, it uses something similar. It has a gateway and that gateway, which is a, a very lightweight Nginx, um, web server in Docker. Um, it listens to certain requests and then it forwards those requests, uh, onto the various different uh, containers. And then obviously the containers respond back and it looks as though you're requesting to multiple different websites when actually you are just sending your requests to that one gateway. It means that you can then have things going on in that gateway to deal with authentication, um, caching and all sorts of other bits and pieces. A good example here is if you have different subdomains and each of those subdomains go um, re- makes a request to a, a gateway because you've created a subdomain. Um, you, you have a different sort of, um, uh, address, I guess. And then you could create a server block in Nginx for, <clears throat> for each one of these. And, uh, they would then send a request to a specific, um, container. Uh, like for instance, we have one for, uh, the CMS, we have one for the API and we have one for the, uh, for the, for the assets for the CDN. They're all going back to the same gateway. The gateway does the authentication, does the caching and so on and so forth. I, I hope that kind of has uh, answered that question. It's kind of gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but I hope that has, has sort of answered that. I'm going to just grab some, some tea. And the last question. From Exabyte, Exabyte three. Um, uh, I, I do apologize for mispronouncing your name earlier. The last question was about, um, the average duration of my projects. So what is the average duration of my projects? Um, so I, I did it kind of answer this sort of on Twitter earlier where I said it was sort of between anywhere from three months to three years, I think I said, it really depends. It, and it's going to sound like a non-answer here, but it really does depend. Um, my longest was, my longest contract was, uh, three, four years. But, um, in that there was, there was time where I could actually do other work as well. So it's not like that was the only sole thing that I was working on. 
um, which was nice. Um, but it really depends when you're a contractor, um, like myself, you usually get asked to do three months, um, as, as kind of like, I don't really see it more. I don't see it as a sort of a probation period. It's more of, um, you know, it's, well, I suppose it is in the way that they, 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 they use that time to see if you're any good. Um, although you kind of need to be good to get the contract, I guess, but it's usually a case of where they say, you know, it's a three month with a rolling, with a rolling extension. And when you look at some of the specifications or when you have your initial meetings, you know that um, the project is going to, and they know the project is going to be more than three months long. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, I mean, it becomes blatantly obvious if they expect it to be done in three months and you know, and it shouldn't be done in three months. It needs to be done in six months, right? Um, but if they've given you a big task that you know is going to take more than three months long and they are they are aware of that, then you know that there's going there there could be a potential for it to to be rolled over. The problem I have, um, which is something that well, it's not a problem. It's just a trait that I have. I don't like seeing. I don't. I don't like just being sort of parachuted onto projects and just sort of like do a little bit of code here and then go away. Um, I know contractors who really like that. They pref- really, they prefer that. They, they haven't seen many projects go live because they've just been dropped, um, power dropped onto a certain bug or feature or something, some sprint they've worked on. And then that's it. They've, they've, they've gone on to something else. Um, with me, it gets to a point where I value seeing the work in the live, you know, out in production, um, as, as much as I value, like, you know, the monetary side of things, um, which, which is okay in some respects, but it, it means that, um, it, I guess on, on the negative hand is that I have had less contracts than many contractors in this time span, span that I've had. Um, which means that I haven't had enough sort of, um, coverage on, uh, different technologies, um, which is probably, you know, the, the question we had before about, um, uh, flow versus TypeScript. I, if I had more contracts, if I was doing, if I was doing smaller amounts of time, uh, on projects and I had more contracts, then I would probably have more exposure to more technologies. Um, so I, yeah, so the longest I've had is about four years. The shortest I've had is, is about six months. Um, every contract I've had has rolled over, has extended, um, which is something that I'm, I'm actually quite proud of. I'm actually quite proud of. Um, but it was, it is something that, um, it is something that was flagged up. Actually, a recruitment agent asked me, you know, they, they said they noticed that my contracts were quite long (laughs) and they were like, you know, some clients like this and some clients don't like this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, we could go into a whole different, a whole different subject as to, you know, when to, when to come out of a contract or when, you know, a contract is good and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, it'll be interesting to hear, uh, what the average is across the board, you know, from everyone else, uh, freelancers and contracts, contractors, what's the longest, time or and shortest time and the average time of being in a, in a contract because the thing is that um you know going back to the one of the questions about saturation in of the market i know that that um you know it, it, there's there's lots of programmers out there and i know for a fact that if i if i was to break a leg break my arm something happens where I'm out of work, the, 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 the projects that I'm working on, they're not just going to go in a tailspin. (laughs) Um, they're going to get another contractor on board and finish the job. So it's not, it's, it's not something that, um, I think is, 
I, so, so on one hand, it's not, it's not a saturated market, but on the other hand, it's, it's kind of like, I know that, um, that I can be replaced if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I hope that, I hope that makes sense. It's a bit of waffly, isn't it? A bit of waffly. Um, <laughs> so Exabyte is saying I've, I've heard Shopify has been taking off too. It has. Yeah. I've never used it. I've never used Shopify ever. Um, I've, I've, I've looked into it. I've created a sort of a test account, but I've never, I've never used it myself. Um, but I know that there is plugins for Shopify and WordPress. Um, and this is a, this, this could be another discussion, you know, that we do in the future is WordPress and Shopify dumbing down web development. Um, because I mean, that's, that's a topic in itself. Um, you can create e-commerce shopping carts that are that that five years ago would have been unheard of you can create those with a few clicks of a button now um off the shelf not bespoke of course there's and there's there's big big negatives for off the shelf stuff um you know the stuff that is just the same as everything else um and uh, the difficulties of bending that to your will uh, in the future. I mean, that's a whole just different discussion there. But yeah, no, I've never used I've never used uh, Shopify. <laughs> um, yeah, for example, an e-commerce site from scratch. How long would that take as a baseline? So how long how long does it take for an e-commerce site? Uh, from scratch. Wow. Gosh. So I would probably say that, um, the longest time, um, that the longest, the, the thing that takes the longest in terms of building a site is having the, is having the, the sign off from many people and getting to a point where the, all the features have been created in the sense of um, they've been tried and tested because I've never been, I've never created a project where it's been the finished article has been exactly what has been defined down to the letter. I've never done a project where it's just been like, you know, you get a, you get a, a specification and then suddenly it's done. Right you know, you can say, oh, I've quoted this and I've, it's, it's going to be, I don't know, three months long and it's going to take, and it, it, it is three months long. I've, I've never been in, in that situation because when you speak to a client, um, they, yes, they've obviously used the web before. Yes, they've, they've obviously, um, they, they know what they want, right? But when they actually use the thing that you've built, there's always that sort of umming and ahhing. You know, there's always that kind of middle ground where you, they don't know exactly what they want until they see it. Or they, they, they don't, um, they can't have the, the, they don't see it in terms of the vision until it's out, out there. Or, or they didn't, expect it to behave in the way it behaves with the other features. So there's always this sort of piece of ground where you, you're not redoing things, but there's a, you know, flexibility time. Um, and that's the, the flexibility time is the thing that takes the longest in a project. Um, getting things like, uh, VAT rules and, uh, pricing rules and all of that stuff done that can be all decided um, because that's off of a spreadsheet, right? You can make those kind of decisions, uh, on paper, but and in terms of getting things looking good, in terms of getting things functionally and UI and actually seeing how the search behaves and all of that, that is the thing that takes the time. Um, so in terms of how long it takes, I guess as a baseline, I would probably say, if we're looking at a small website, I'm probably going to say something like three months. If it's a large website, we're probably talking, uh, it may even be, you know, it really depends on the meetings and the umming and ahhing. It depends on the size of the project. It depends on the amount of people involved because when you've got lots of people involved, 
Um, then you've got lots of different agendas, lots of different decisions to make, um, lots of different buy-ins and, uh, that can, that can balloon the project. Um, but yeah, I suppose, I suppose from start to finish a basic e-commerce site, three months in terms of getting it built and getting it up and to the point where you've got say, um, your SEO done, you've got your, um, your, your, your marketing sort of side of it done. Um, because this is, it's more than just a website when you're doing, we're dealing with e-commerce It's more, it's more than just putting things in a shopping cart and pressing buy. It's, it's also getting things like, you know, email signups. It's, it's like getting, um, uh, things like, um, your search and your, analytics and working out user journeys and all of that jazz and upselling and making things sort of usable. And, and this it's more than just a shopping cart. <laughs> um, but then, but then if, if we're talking about big clients where there's lots of, lots of people involved, lots of different departments involved, lots of different assets, lots of different things involved, lots of ideas flowing around, then, you know, it can, it, yeah, we're talking, we could be talking months. We could be talking even, even years, uh, to be honest. Um, because it's one of those sort of rinse, it's one of those repeatable processes. You, you show work and then the work gets, gets refined and tried and tested, um, and then often changed. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know that I've been on projects where, where I, I've been put onto a project halfway through the project. And I know that that project has already been, been, um, in development for a very long time. <laughs> so yeah. Um, do I take multiple con- contracts at a time? Um, it really, it depends on, um, at the moment, no, uh, at the moment, no, because, um, that just time, I just, you just cannot do that. Um, you have to put all your, with the contracts that I'm on at the moment, you have to put in your hours, right. As in like, you have to, um, uh, it says in the contract that you need to have do this amount of hours. You just can't physically get another contract in. Um, and also with certain contracts, you have to, you know, you, you, you certainly have to abide by their rules and therefore, um, you've got to be careful with, um, uh, what's the word? Um, oh, I can't think of it. It's, um, conflict of interests, right? So you can't be working for X if you're working for Y, or you can't be doing this if you're doing that, that kind of stuff. But usually it's down to time. You know, if I, if I cannot physically have do another contract because I've, I've quoted and I've agreed to do five days a week for this one contract, then there is no chance in hell that I'm going to do another one. However, um, uh, about, start of the year, uh, end of last year, I was working for two companies, uh, at the same time. And they were, one was two days, one was three days, I believe. And then, bef- and, and that was great. And that was in the contract. It was, you know, you do three days here, uh, for this contract. And then you would do two days over there for that contract. And they didn't care. They, they you know, they, they, it was like, um, they didn't, they didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And there was no conflict there. And then before that, um, I did four days a week on a contract and, um, I spent, well, I spent a lot of time on the Friday, uh, producing videos for YouTube. Um, and I was in that contract for a very, very long time. Um, which was, which was really, really good. I loved that contract. Um, and, uh, but unfortunately that's, you know, contracts end and you've got to just roll, roll with it. And, and, um, and now I seem to be working far more than I've ever done, <laughs> uh, which is great on one hand, but it does mean that how to cope well has unfortunately suffered, but you, with a, with, with freelance and contracting, you've, you've kind of got to roll with it because, um, especially around these times with COVID times, um, so, you know, the how to cope well has been quite, 
fluid and flexible kind of works around the um, the work that I have. That's why I stream uh, Tuesdays in the morning at seven in the morning um, and Thursdays here, um, which is 9 p.m., in the, in the afternoon and then on Sundays at half past two, uh, on a Sunday, that's usually the longer stream. So, um, I don't do any how to code well in working hours just cause I can't, I, <laughs> I get, not only am I becoming physically exhausted, but I'm also becoming mentally exhausted, uh, with the, with, uh, with all the bits and pieces that I'm up to. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's go back to the uh, the questions. Amo uh, came across this framework built on top of Laravel. Ooh, uh, this is from As. Is it Asim? Asim came across this framework built on top of Laravel called Oh gosh, Appetito. Appetito follows the proto architecture. I haven't heard of that. If you have the time, could you comment on that? Oh, I tell you what, well, I've never heard of that. Uh, but what I'll do, Asim, if that, if, if you're okay with this, I will look at this up because this seems, this sounds interesting. Um, I will look this up and, uh, I might, uh, I'll comment on it when I know more about it, I suppose. Um, it's built on top of Laravel. So it's a framework on top of a framework. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. What I, I, I also don't know what the Porto architecture is either. So I don't know what I don't, I just don't know. This is showing my naivety and my stupidity, perhaps. <laughs> I pronounced it right. That's probably the only thing I've pronounced right tonight. <laughs> Ah, uh, wow. Gosh, I'm going to have some, this is, I'm drinking elderberry tea, by the way. Mm. Yum, yum, yum. Ah, uh, well, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, it's, uh, it's been great to do this. I'm going to, I would like to do this more often, um, to actually talk about, uh, the, the questions that I get in full in, in more detail. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopefully going to do this more often, but if you've got any more questions though, then do let me know. Um, obviously, uh, fire them at uh, the discord server, go to howtocowell.net forward slash discord. If you're not a member there, then do please consider joining. And also, um, uh, hook me up on Twitter, um, and, uh, at, at how to code well, everything is at how to code well. And if you want to, if you want to watch me try and do some code at seven in the morning, then do check out the Tuesday streams as well. <laughs> anyway, for those watching on the YouTubes, happy coding. And I'm going to put this onto our, the, onto the podcast, um, next week. So for those listening, happy coding as well. Thank you ever so much 